Our sermon text this morning is Psalm 61. Give ear to the reading of God's holy word. Psalm 61, it says, To the choir master with stringed instruments of David, Hear my cry, O God, listen to my prayer. From the end of the earth I call to you when my heart is faint. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. For you have been my refuge, a strong tower against the enemy. Let me dwell in your tent forever. Let me take refuge under the shelter of your wings. For you, O God, have heard my vows. You have given me the heritage of those who fear your name. Prolong the life of the king. May his years endure to all generations. May he be enthroned forever before God. Appoint steadfast love and faithfulness to watch over him. So will I ever sing praises to your name as I perform my vows day after day. The sentence the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you have given us your word, that it is a light to our feet and a lamp to our path, that by it we can know you rightly through faith in Jesus Christ when we read of and hear of the gospel and its pages. And we ask once again that you would work in us by your spirit, give us eyes to see and ears to hear great things from your word, work in us by your spirit also that we might not be uh, deceiving ourselves, that we might be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving ourselves. Uh, work in us, sanctify us by your truth, and uh, convert the lost. Glorify your name, for we ask all of this in the name of Christ Jesus, your Son and our Lord. Amen. Well, you've probably heard the saying applied in multiple different ways over the years. You know, people will say sometimes, you know, such and such is not for the faint of heart. You know, whether it be a scary roller coaster or a scary or a tough job or a physical contact sport or something, they'll say it's not for the faint of heart. Maybe a scary movie. The older you get, there are more things that aren't for the faint of heart. Uh, things I used to think weren't so big a deal. Now I don't like them as much. But, um, well, I have good news for you. This Psalm of David is, is for the faint of heart. This, uh, David actually says so in the Psalm itself. Uh, when he, when he cries out to God and asks God to listen to his prayer, uh, he says to God to do that, quote, verse two, when my heart is faint. He's confessing to God that that's the situation, this, the condition that he was in as he prayed. Think about that. Even David, you know, the man after God's own heart, the king of Israel, the man who, remember the little song that people sang, the little ditty that drove King Saul nuts? They said, you know, Saul killed his thousands, but David killed his tens of thousands. You know, he was a man of war. He was a brave man who did all kinds of exploits, you know, took, took on Goliath like it was nothing. Said, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And yet even David had times and situations in his life when he, when his heart was faint. Even David got overwhelmed at times. Do you get overwhelmed at times? I get overwhelmed at times. Even by little, little dumb things, I get overwhelmed at times. And David is no exception to that. If you've ever felt faint of heart, if you've ever felt like you can't, you know, it's, the picture David is sort of painting here, it, it, the way I read it, it sounds like he's kind of in the middle of the ocean. It's like he's shipwrecked. And he doesn't even know which, he doesn't know where the land is. He doesn't know how to get there. He even asks God, lead me to the rock. I don't even know where it is. I don't even know where to go. Uh, to find to find the help, David felt overwhelmed by whatever his circumstances were. Do, do you feel the same way sometimes? Have, have your circumstances, your trials, the tests of your faith, have they made you feel overwhelmed? 
If, if that's the case, whether now or some other time, then this, among other psalms, this psalm is for you uh, this morning. If you think about it, all the psalms are kind of like that. They don't always apply to every circumstance, uh, each one uh, that you're going through at the time. But if you've not found throughout your life that no matter what you might be going through, and there's all kinds of things we go through, good and bad and otherwise, uh, whether success or failure, whether triumph or trial, whether time of prosperity or time of dire need, whether your heart is full or your heart is faint, there are psalms that enable you to worship God in the midst of whatever you're going through. There's a psalm for it. There's a psalm for that. There's a psalm for whatever it is God has got you going through in your life. And it's not without reason that those psalms, uh, like this one does, very often, what do they do? They point us back to the rock that's higher than I, to use David's words. That, that seems to be the solution uh, that we are not quick to look for on our own, but that is a solution that the scriptures often point us to for good reason. Well, the first thing we're going to see in our psalm is David's prayer. David's prayer. Now, I know in some ways, in some ways, all the psalms and everything in the psalms are prayers. They're songs. They're things to be sung. What does it say to the choir master with stringed instruments? They're meant to be sung in worship. We try to do that. We sang a version of part of Psalm 5 even this morning. But they're also prayers. And a lot of it, really the whole psalm is a prayer. Most of it is addressed to God directly. Uh, both in how we're singing and how we're we're praying. But look at verses 1 through 3 again. David says, Hear my cry, O God, listen to my prayer. From the end of the earth I call to you uh, when my heart is faint. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I, for you have been my refuge, a strong tower against the enemy. He's crying out to God, you know, we always pray, but sometimes you pray and you're a little, you're, you're in more earnest. You're, you're crying out to God to be heard. That's what David's doing here. Now, most, uh, many commentators believe that David wrote this psalm during a time of some kind of exile. In other words, we don't know which one it was. He's not very specific in the title of the psalm. He doesn't tell us exactly what he was going through, but, but the, the picture he's painting is one where he's, he's not in Jerusalem. For whatever reason, we, we think that, that uh, this is after he had become king, but he's forced out of Jerusalem, forced away from the temple, forced away from the people of God, forced away from the worship of God uh, with God's people in, in the tabernacle. Um, and he's cut off from all those things. And so he's crying out to God uh, about it. Now, if you and I don't understand or sympathize with David about how that would feel, to be cut off from those particular things, cut off from the public worship of God with God's people. If we don't sympathize with that, if we don't hear that and and think, wow, that would be awful, uh, I think that's a sad commentary on both the state of our hearts as well as uh, of our low esteem of the great privileges that you and I enjoy in the ordinary means of grace in public worship. We, we We thankfully are able to take for granted, so to speak, what we do every Lord's Day here. Many don't have this this privilege and this wonderful means of grace uh, without without much trouble. Now, David's exile here uh, reminds me a bit of, if you were here last Sunday, we looked at Revelation 1, 9 through 20. And in that first uh, part, uh, that first chapter of the book of Revelation, you might know that John, the apostle John, talked about his own exile. He doesn't use the word, but he says in verse 9 that he was, quote, on the island called Patmos, 
Why? On account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. John, John was telling us, telling his readers, he was exiled from, uh, from everything, from the comforts of home, from the comforts of worship with God's people, all on account of the word of God and his faithfulness to the testimony of Jesus Christ. Now David here cries out to God to listen to his prayer in verse 2, quote, where? From the ends of the earth. Or from the end of the earth. Now we don't know, uh, again, we don't know where he was. We don't know what had driven him from Jerusalem. We don't really know how far he might have been geographically, literally from Jerusalem. Uh, But you can be sure from this psalm that David felt very far. He felt far from Jerusalem, felt far from the place of worship, felt far from his comforts of home. And I think, I think he even felt very far from God, maybe in, in a way because of that. And so he's crying out, you know, so, you know, if you're in, if you're in this room and you're talking to somebody and you're, you're two feet away, you don't talk very loudly unless one of you is, or both are hard of hearing. It's when somebody is far away, what do you have to do to get their attention? You yell. You cry out. That's kind of the picture David's painting here. He's crying out for God to listen and hear his prayer. Well, what, what did David do when he was faint of heart? He prayed. That sounds like an easy, simple thing. Of course, David would pray. What else would David do? He's David. He's a man of God, man after God's own heart. That might seem like the most natural thing in the world to do, but if I can ask honestly, how often do you and I fail to do that? I know I do. I treat, maybe you do, I treat prayer a lot of times like a last resort, which is really silly. It's, it's, it's foolish is what it is, it, and it's prideful. I can get this when I need help, then I'll, then I'll let God know. David, David didn't do that. He didn't, he didn't waste time. He prayed, he cried out to God. How often do our circumstances weigh us down and sap our strength, and yet we hesitate to pray? And David teaches us here in this psalm to not do that, to to just pray, to cry out to God, even when it doesn't seem like he's answering. And if anything, this led David to pray even more, even more earnestly. In other words, you know, we pray sometimes. Have you ever prayed? Don't raise your hand. Have you ever prayed? And you just kind of check the box. You 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 have your your grocery list, and you 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 know, which is not a bad thing to have a list. It keeps you from from forgetting things, keeps you from mind, mindful of things. And you, you pray for the things, and the next day you pray for the same things, and you pray for the same things. And you kind of almost fall into this rut where you're almost not really watching for God to answer. It's like prayer is an end in and of itself. I did what I'm supposed to do. God's not really going to do anything. David isn't content with that, is he? We shouldn't be content with that either. What does he do? He says, hear my cry, O God. Listen to my prayer. He's not content to not know that he's been heard, that God has heard and is answering him. It reminds me of uh, Jacob. might know the story of Jacob in Genesis chapter 32 when he wrestles with God at Peniel. And what does he say? Remember, he, he, there's this, there's this uh, man, that he, so he thinks, at this place, and suddenly he's wrestling with this man, he gets his hip put out of joint. It sounds like a paint, sounds like an MMA match or something. And, and he's holding on to him. And what does he say? He, he tells God, really, I will not let you go unless you bless me. I'm not going to tap out. I'm going to hang on. You're going to have to kill me. Like, bless me or kill me, one or the other. 
Uh, and what did God do? God blessed him and changed his name to Israel, called him a prince with, with God. Well, David's wrestling with God here. It's the same kind of thing. He's wrestling with him, not in some kind of literal way, but in, in prayer, he's wrestling with God in prayer in this psalm. His prayer has kind of a ring of desperation to it, doesn't he? It's as if he's overwhelmed and has no place else to go. And so he cries out to God and he's emphatic and earnest in his prayer. When, when things get serious, when our troubles, when your troubles overwhelm you, and at times we know they do, we tend to lose uh, much of the formality of our prayers. You know, in, in, on Sunday mornings, uh, whether we're prepared things beforehand or praying you know, extemporaneously, we do both, um, we tend to be a little bit more formal in our, in our praying. Nothing wrong with formality, per se, in praying, but when things are rough, when you're overwhelmed and you don't know what to do, we tend to lose all that formality, don't we? He just cries out to God, hear me, listen to my prayer. I have to know someone that you're listening and that you're going to, to answer. He's just crying out for help. Our troubles and afflictions, if you think about it, they often work together for our good in a lot of ways. We don't often see it, but if your troubles and trials and afflictions get you back to praying to God, they're already doing you good. It's already doing you good. Foxholes and shipwrecks have a way of turning even the most hardened atheists into praying men and women. And how much more is that true of believers in Christ who, you know, many of us, probably no one in this room, myself included, would dare to say that we are consider ourselves seasoned prayer warriors, and yet troubles, what do they often do? They stir us to spend much time on our knees in prayer by those trials and afflictions. If our troubles and afflictions get us once again on our knees crying out to God in prayer, then in the end, they will have actually done us very much good if they get us praying and seeking God's face. How often are we lax in our prayer lives when things are going well? And when things are are smooth sailing in our lives, I think it's at that time we're tempted to think that we don't need God now. When things get rough, we need God, but when things are going well, we must be doing something right. We must be able to handle things on our on our own, but we need God at all times. We just prayed the Lord's Prayer. What do we pray for in that prayer? Lots of things, but we ask God for our daily bread. We probably take most of our food for granted. We let half of it spoil, probably. You know, we, We've got so much, we don't think it. We, we pray that prayer every first Sunday, maybe other times as well, and I think sometimes we forget. I know I do. I don't have a speck of that bread, literal or otherwise, unless God gets, no matter how hard I work, no matter how you know how uh, diligently we shop and save and all these things, we get not a speck to eat or a drop of water without God giving it to us. Everything we have comes from God. Every good and perfect gift, James says, comes to us from God alone, the Father of lights in whom there's no shadow of turning. And look at verse 2. What does David cry out for God to do? What does he want him to hear and listen and do? He says, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. Charles Spurgeon says of this verse, he says, there is a mine, like a gold mine, there is a mine of meaning in this brief prayer. He means just that part of verse 2. That's kind of the heart of the whole psalm. He doesn't know, he has no place to go, he doesn't know where, he doesn't know where to go, he just knows he needs help from God, and he says, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. That's the sum and substance of David's request throughout this prayer in Psalm 61. Think about it, David was the king of Israel. 
a mighty man of valor, a guy who killed Goliath when he was younger, and yet even he knew full well that he himself was no rock. He knew that salvation was of the Lord and not of himself. David knew that he himself was not his own rock. It wasn't me, myself, and I. I can take care of this. I've got this. I'm King David. He wasn't delusional in that regard. He knew that he wasn't the captain of his own soul. He wasn't the master of his own fate. Another way of saying that is David knew he wasn't God. David knew that there was a God and he wasn't him. The Lord alone was David's rock of refuge. If we had lived in David's time, you and I would have looked up to David, I hope. We would have said, that's David. You know, I'm whatever I am. That's, that's King David. Well, David, David didn't look in the mirror and say, there's my rock. David said, only the Lord's my rock. How did David kill Goliath? David told Goliath before he did it, the Lord's going to give you into my hand, right? Did David, David didn't you know, skip the armor because I don't need armor. I'm, I'm invincible because I'm David. He went forth and said, how dare this uncircumcised Philistine defy the armies of the living Saul? God. He said, you're defying God. You're, you think you're big. You're nothing. You're an ant compared to God. And so David went forth and, and conquered him in the Lord. David also knew that he wasn't, he also knew not, not just that he was himself the rock. He knew that he didn't even know how to find the rock on his own. He wasn't even competent enough to find the rock of safety and salvation unless God himself led him to it. You know, it's, again, it, 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 I picture it in my own head as kind of like a shipwreck. If you ever, have you ever been out to sea, like not, not out to sea where you can still see the beach. You ever been out to sea where you can't see, if you were blindfolded, didn't have a compass, you, would not, you wouldn't know where the land was because all you see is blue. I've been out there many a time, and it's, it's, it's awesome, but it's also kind of frightening. Well, that's, that's kind of the picture David. David's saying, Leave, I don't even know where to go. I don't even know which direction to start swimming to get out of this mess. Lead me to the rock that's higher than, than I God had to lead him to it in addition to being his rock. Do you and I pray the same way? Do you recognize your own weaknesses and your own helplessness on your own? We should. Our trials have a way of doing that. They teach us, what's the, what's the old saying, a man's got to know his limitations? Well, our, our trials and tribulations, I think, teach us our limitations, and they're very, very tight. There's not much, that, if anything, that we can We can't do anything on our own, Christ says, right? Apart from me, you can do nothing. Well, here in the psalm, David also reminds himself of God's past mercies upon him. That in the past, God had been his refuge and a strong tower, verse 3, against the enemy. So what's he doing? This is what we should do as well. You know, the, the older you get, the, the longer you've been in the faith, the, the more times that you can look back on your life and see God's faithfulness to you. And so David says, what does he say? Verse 3, he asks those things, you know, lead me to the rock that's higher than I, verse 3, for you have been in the past, you have been my refuge, you have been a strong tower against the enemy. And so he, he encourages himself in the Lord by looking back on what God had done throughout his life, his faithfulness, his mercies, his past mercies, David uses to encourage himself that God will show him fresh mercies and faithfulness in his present trial as as well, that God would continue to be what he's been in the past to 
David. David asks also that God would let him dwell in his tent. In verse 4, that word could also be translated tabernacle. Remember the tabernacle and the temple? What was the tabernacle? It was the portable version of the temple. It was basically a glorified, no pun intended, tent. A place of meeting and worship with God's people. And, And the temple and the tabernacle, they're pictures of Christ, and they're also pictures of heaven. Because why? It's the place where sinners get to meet with God. And God dwells with his with his people. David's asking that God would let him dwell in his tent forever. No matter where he was, no matter how far from the earthly Jerusalem David may have been forced to flee, David knew that his only true refuge, defense, and shelter was in the Lord himself, and not in the physical structures in Jerusalem. God was the real protector, the real refuge, the real strong tower, the real wall of protection. And so I ask this morning, is God, is the Lord Jesus Christ, is he your rock that's higher than you? We, we have a lot of rocks that we lean on and, and, and look to, but is he really your rock? Is he your refuge himself and your strong tower? Is it your heart's desire to dwell in the tent or house of the Lord forever? Do you look for refuge under the shelter of his wings? Or do you trust in your own self? Do you trust in other things? Do you trust in your own abilities, possessions, power, privileges, whatever the case may be? To trust in anyone or anything else other than God and the Lord Jesus Christ is to build your house upon the sand and not upon the rock. And what does Jesus say in Matthew 7 about that kind of a house? When the wind and the waves hit it, it's going to crash hard. The only house that stands is the one that's built on a firm foundation of the rock, which is Jesus Christ, our Lord. Well, this, that brings us to the second thing we find in our psalm in verses 6 through 7, and that's not just David's prayer, but David's rock. David's rock. In verses 6 to 7, he says, Prolong the life of the king. May his years endure to all generations. May he be enthroned forever before God. Appoint steadfast love and faithfulness to watch over him. I don't know if you picked up on that when you were reading it, but you notice that David is all of a sudden speaking in the third person. You know, celebrities often do that. That's not what David's doing. He's not saying, hey, you know, King David, King David's pretty great. You know, God, it'd be nice if you'd help King David out. King David's a good guy. King David loves you. That's not what he's doing. He's not, he's not talking about himself. That's, that's what it sounds like. He's not suddenly talking about himself in the third person. Some some liberal scholars that have difficulties with Scripture being the Word of God, to put it mildly, they'll say, oh, someone added this later. You know, David, David, you know, David was writing the rest of it, and then somebody else came along and added you know, this stuff about the king in the third person, because they're talking about David, therefore the author of verses 6 and 7, you get the picture, is not, is not David. I don't think that's what's happening here at all. I think it's much more likely that David, as he often did, spoke in the third person here because he was speaking about somebody else. The king was talking about the king. The, David was talking about his, his rock, and the one he was talking about was the Messiah, the son of David, the Lord Jesus Christ, who was yet to come when David wrote this psalm. You know, we know from a lot of the psalms, we know from the New Testament's use of the psalms at, at various times that David spoke about Christ. Jesus himself said that David spoke about the Christ. In Psalm 110.1, the Lord said to my Lord, 
you know, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. It's the, remember, Dr. Cass preached that a while back and said it was God's favorite Bible verse. It's, it's, the, it's the most quoted verse. I always get this awkwardly put. It's the most quoted verse out of the Old Testament in all of the New Testament. The New Testament quotes that verse more than any other Old Testament passage. And Jesus was one of the ones that quoted it. And then he says, look, David wrote about who? Whom? Me, Jesus was saying. Was David aware that he was writing about Christ? I believe he was. I believe he knew that he wasn't writing about himself. He was writing about the king who was to come. Now, David's not just saying, you know, long live the king. It's kind of how we read it sometimes. I don't think that's all he's saying. Uh, he's, he speaks of the king not only whose days would be added or multiplied by God, but also whose years would be added. Then he, what does it say? Verse 6. To all generations. You could literally render that last phrase in verse 6 as from age to age. Now, David lived a good long life. David ruled about 40 years in Jerusalem uh, over Israel. Uh, David's years were not multiplied from generation to generation. How about Solomon, the king after David? How long did he reign? If I remember right, about 40 years. Now, to us, that sounds like an eternity. Now, if we have a president that lasts eight years, we think that's forever. David reigned 40, Solomon might have reigned 40, but he says from generation to generation, or to all generations, or from age to age. This is not some mere human king that David is talking about and praying about and looking to in Psalm 61. He also prays that this king would sit, quote, verse 7, enthroned forever before God. Enthroned forever before God. And that's precisely what the Lord had promised to David back in 2 Samuel 7. He promised that he was going to raise up the offspring of David, the seed of David, and and, and make a covenant with, with David that he would raise up that offspring or seed after him and establish his kingdom. 2 Samuel seven twelve and in verse 13 he says that he was going to establish the throne of his kingdom how long? Forever. That's not Solomon. That's not David. That's the Lord Jesus Christ, who's seated, he's seated at the right. We just confessed it this morning in the, in the Nicene Creed. He's seated at the right hand of the Father, and his kingdom shall have no end. That's what the Bible says, is what we confessed in the Nicene Creed this morning. David also prays in verse 7 that God would, quote, appoint steadfast love and faithfulness to watch over him. The steadfast love of God that was in our call to worship in Psalm 5, it's in our sermon text. And it's also the same thing that God mentioned back in 2 Samuel 7, uh, God's covenant to David, when he told David he would never take away the steadfast love, uh, his steadfast love to David's seed. He says, but my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. In other words, there's a king who was to come that wasn't David and wasn't Saul and wasn't Solomon uh, that was going to reign forever and God was going to establish him by his steadfast love, his covenant love. Who is that? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. So in the psalm, when David asked God to lead him to the rock that was higher than himself in verse 2, what do we find in the rest of the psalm except that God did just that? God led him. Uh, to the Lord Jesus Christ, it turned his thoughts forward by faith to the Lord Jesus Christ who was to come. 
The Lord Jesus Christ who was to come in David's day, uh, yet was yet to come in David's day, was the solid rock on which David looked to and on which David stood. David found his comfort and refuge in all times of trial in Christ who was yet to come. David Dixon writes the following. He says, The glory of Christ and the perpetuity of his kingdom are every subject's good and comfort. For this is comfort to David that Christ shall live forever, that he shall abide before God forever. Read that again. The glory of Christ. I mean, David was not enjoying glory at the time when he wrote this psalm. We don't know what he was going through, but he was in over his head. He didn't know where to go. He asked God to show me where to go. Lead me to the rock that's higher than I. And, And Dixon says, the glory of Christ, you know, the king, and the perpetuity, the fact that it never ends, that nothing comes after, that nothing will threaten or undo his kingdom. Those things are every subject's subject. That's us. We are Christ's subjects. Every subject's good and comfort, and this is comfort to David that Christ shall live forever and that he shall abide before God forever. You know, the comforts in this life that we have from things other than Christ are iffy at best, they're transitory at best. If you're into politics, if that is something that, that gets you out of bed or, or, or makes you lay awake at night, uh, you know, you've just seen this past weekend with the Supreme Court uh, goings on and the nomination and finally his confirmation of uh, Judge Kavanaugh, Justice Kavanaugh now. Um, you know, many of us look at those things and think, my whole future depends on that. And if the wrong guy gets elected, bad things could happen. That's that's a reality, right? If the wrong person gets confirmed or not confirmed to the Supreme Court, I just don't know what's going to happen. And those things are true to an extent, but what does David do here? David says, you know what? No matter what happens in all this stuff, there's one king that nobody gets to unconfirm. There's one king who reigns forever, whose decrees cannot be withstood, whose nothing changes. And his glory doesn't change. Nobody withstands him. He's the one king that no one can threaten. You know, Psalm 2, I won't read it right now, but it talks about the kings of the earth and the rulers of this world. You know, they if I can paraphrase, you know, they shake their fist at, at God and, and his king, his anointed king, and what does God do? The Lord who sits in heaven laughs. He holds them in derision. Who do you think you are? That they're nothing, they're not even a drop in a bucket or a drop in a bucket in the ocean compared to God. And so David David knows his future is secure, not because David is anything, but because Jesus Christ, the one who was to come, and has now come in the past in our day, is reigning. So I ask again, is the Lord Jesus Christ your rock? Is he the one thing that gets you out of bed in the morning? Is the glory of Christ and the fact that he reigns forever uh, in his kingdom, is that your comfort in this life? It should be. In this world, Jesus says, you and I will have trouble. In this world, things will get shaken. But in Christ, we are given the heritage or the inheritance of those who fear God's name, verse 5. And Hebrews twelve twenty-eight tells us that in Christ, we are receiving a kingdom that what? Cannot be shaken. Can't. Nothing can shake it. Nothing can shake it because Jesus Christ is our rock. This reminds me of, uh, I know you're going to think everything everything turns back to Hebrews, right? Hebrews 7.25. It always strikes me how 
how often the scriptures talk about the ascension of Christ and his what we call his session, that he's seated at God's right hand. I don't think about it hardly at all, and yet scripture repeats it over and over again. Hebrews 7.25, I'll start at 7.24, he says, But he, that's Christ, he holds his priesthood permanently. Why? Because he continues, he lives forever. Here it is, verse 25. Consequently, he, Christ, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Why? Since he always lives to make intercession for them. Because he lives forever and he reigns forever at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, interceding for us, standing there representing us as our great high priest. Uh, he, he is able to save us to the uttermost, those who draw near to God through, through him. And that brings us uh, lastly to the, uh, David's praise, which is found in, in verse 8. Uh, when he says there, uh, so, so will I ever sing praises to your name as I perform my vows day after day. You know, what, what did David, what did David pray in verse 7? Or what, what did he look at in verse 7? He prayed that the king, Christ, would be what? Enthroned forever before God. He's talking about the ascension. He's talking about Christ being seated at God's right hand representing us before the Father, reigning over all things for our good, interceding for our benefit that nothing can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ. And so what does that lead David to do? David said, lead me to the rock that's higher than I. God did just that, pointed him to Christ, pointed his heart and mind to Christ, and that led David to praise, didn't it? That's What's the most, I should say, supernatural response, natural response to understanding these things about Jesus Christ as our rock, it's higher than I. It's praise. So will I ever sing praises to your name as I perform my vows day after day. What? How did David perform his vows? What's he saying? It sounds like he's making a foxhole prayer. God, get me out of this, and I'll do X, Y, and Z. That's, we do that. People have done that for years and years, right? And God often, honestly, honors those prayers as imperfect and flawed and dumb as they sometimes are. Um, but what does David, how does David fulfill his vows? By singing praise. God, David's not saying, hey God, let's make a bargain. I'll do this for you and you get me out of this mess. Uh, as if God needs anything. Does God need anything? No. And so what does David do? David offers up the sacrifice of praise. He sings praise to God's name forever. David's heart was faint, but when his thoughts and his heart turned to the rock of his salvation, the Lord Jesus Christ, his heart became full, and so he praised God and vowed to God that that's what he would do the rest of his life and even forever. Augustine, or Augustine, depending how refined you are, sums up verse 8 and really the whole psalm in this way when he writes, They that are godly are oppressed and vexed in the church or congregation for this purpose, that when they are oppressed, they should cry. In other words, they should pray. And when they cry, that they should be heard. And when they are heard, that they should laud and praise God. Did you get that? They that are godly are oppressed and vexed in the church or congregation for this purpose, that when they are oppressed, they should cry out to God. And when they cry, that they should be heard. And when they are heard, in other words, when God answers, right, they should laud and praise God. We praise God for his mercies and his deliverance of us in 
Christ David in the psalm prayed that he might dwell in the tent of the Lord forever, verse 4, and that his rock, the Lord Jesus Christ, might be enthroned forever before God in verse 7. And this has come to pass after his death for our sins and his resurrection from the dead on the third day. And our Lord Jesus Christ is even now, again, as we already confessed in the Nicene Creed, uh, he's seated at the right hand of the Father and his kingdom will have no end. The things that David looked forward to, we look back to. They've already taken place and we're already enjoying the fruits of those things that Christ is doing even now. And so David and all those who know the Lord Jesus Christ by faith, you don't have to be a king for this to apply to you. We would uh, not only dwell in the tent of the Lord forever because Christ is enthroned forever, but we would also ever sing praises to God's name as David does here in verse 8. David's vows were essentially to worship God and to give him the glory, all the glory for his salvation and to sing his praise forever. That's the very least that you and I can do for all of God's mercies to us in his Son, who is the rock that's higher than I am. Let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that uh, though all kinds of different things overwhelm us, and sometimes we don't know what to do, and we just cry out to you and ask you to hear and answer our prayers, and we ask you to lead us to the rock that is higher than I. Lord, forgive us for the ways that we sometimes tend to think that, that we are our own rock, that we are the captain of our own ship, and the master of our own souls, and and uh, sometimes the trials of our lives remind us that that's not the case, that we can't handle the stuff on our own, that uh, we are not our own rocks, and no other human being is, no prince, no president, no Supreme Court justice, no king, no anyone is the rock, only the king of kings, the Lord Jesus Christ, your son and our redeemer. And we thank you for psalms like this that remind us of that, that point us to him, We thank you for all of your word, the way that it points us to Christ, his sufferings and his glory for our salvation. Uh, Lord, we ask that you would, as as David wrote and as we've uh, read this morning, that you would lead us, especially those of us who may be undergoing trial and affliction, that you would lead us all to the rock that is higher than I, that we might look to him reigning at your right hand and, and take comfort in his glory and that his kingdom cannot be shaken and that we too would perform our vows to you in giving you praise, uh, both here on your day with your people as well as with our neighbors and anybody else you bring across our path, that we would be constantly giving you praise and glory for all things. And we do pray, Lord, that if there's someone here this morning that does not yet know you, uh, who is undergoing uh, the trials of life, that you might even make those trials of life profitable to them by leading them uh, to that rock that is higher than I, that they might look to Christ by faith and have life in his name and forgiveness and all the blessings that only come through him, uh, that they might look to him as their rock and have salvation in his name. Thank you that, that everyone who comes to you by him through faith can be is saved to the uttermost because your son, our Lord, ever lives to intercede and reign on our behalf at your right hand. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.